Okay, here are the ground rules for the questions. Um, raise your hand if you have a question. I'll call on you. Um, and feel free to direct your question specifically to either Dr. Guter or Dr. Perkins, or just leave it open and either one of them can, can pick it up. Um, so, uh, Paul, Mike's coming your way right there. Paul, go ahead. I've got so many questions, I don't know where to start, but I'll pick with the most, the one I can most accurate, uh, that I can best verbalize. So, for, mostly for Dr. Perkins. Um, I feel like you were just getting started on the, uh, the prosperity gospel thing and how consumerism has affected the church. And I would, if you have more to say on that, not only would I love to hear it, I think it would greatly benefit uh, us here tonight. And if it's possible for Dr. Guter, if you have anything to comment um, in that regard as well, when he's, when he's done, I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to say as well. It's, you know, I've spent a lot of my life in, in organizing work opportunities. I think the, uh, the best welfare program is a good job, and I think it gives you the maximum of freedom. You don't have to conform. You have earned it. And so you have, your dignity has been affirmed by work. Uh, I see the effect on it in terms of the poverty of our people looking outside of themselves for mm -hmm. prosperity. I think the dignity is to tie it with my creativity, my hard work, my discipline. Self-discipline. I think that's the way the Bible presents it. And I don't reject success. Uh, I like success. So I spent a lot of my time in that. I, organize, I helped to organize the Southern Cooperative uh, Movement to establish economics. I helped to organize the Southern Cooperative Development Fund to start business enterprises. But you don't start enterprises when you become all consuming. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a little bit of equity, saving. You're going to have to buy something of value in the society. And that we then buy to affirm our worth. And that become addiction in the society. And the consequence of then is stealing, uh, gouging, selling dope, exploiting your own people. And then, of course, the worst exploitation is these uh, uh, payday loans. I mean, that's criminalist. Uh, you borrow $300 and you pay 900 back. Mm. That's criminalist. And that's in the Bible are strong about lending, mm -hmm. about lending, because money accumulated is powerful. Money accumulated is powerful. So much so that really uh, biblical justice is an economic issue. It's a stewardship issue. 
It's a stewardship issue. The Jubilee was to give people a re-stewarding, a re-another chance. And, and it have to happen. Otherwise, the poor get poor and the rich get richer. I don't separate what's going on in the Middle East from the information of the media and the education of the people and the dictator family that controls the all within the society. And these people seeing this possibility and knowing the wealth that they have, but not being able to participate in it. And so people are crying out uh, for that. And in my community, it's crying out in crime, in, in theft, in, in, in exploitation of, 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 our, of our people. And making the man too weak and not courageous enough to take care of his family. Eighty-four percent of our children are being raised without a father in the home. We are building prisons on the basis of the school dropout because you can take it right back there and you can know who's going to drop out of school and who's going to go to prison. This is, this is, in most of the stuff we're doing is treating symptoms. Uh, in our, in, in the society. So that, and it's that economic exploitation. Well, it, the, the, the issues raised by the prosperity gospel and by the role of consumerism reshaping, pervasively shaping the character of so much of the church is, first of all, an evidence of the ancient problem of reducing the gospel to simply what I get out of it, which, which is really old, the, the gospel of benefit, without any sense of vocation, what it is that, why it is that God allows me to experience this grace so I can become its agent. It becomes a heresy when you reduce the gospel to a thing, like uh, the, the size of your bank account, your economic success. So, I mean, we're dealing with some of the most serious problems that come out of the long history of Christendom, but we have exacerbated them in America because of the way we've allowed the church to be taken over by the marketplace. I tell my students, we've replaced the partnership of church and state with church and marketplace, and the marketplace is winning. We have a question right here. I heard a pastor from Virginia named uh, Greg Thompson talk about how uh, if we can't find unity within our congregations between young and old and between um, even just within our communities, that there's no way that we're even going to touch social justice um, and the church's ability to find the unity between races and cultures will never happen if we can't even do it with our congregations um, could you respond to that a little bit? Would you agree? Would you nuance it differently? Um, did you sure. Did you get that? Okay, I might hear it better. I think the, the the problem that you're referring to the the inability of congregations, particularly the generations within congregations, to function as one community, is the evidence of a fundamental misunderstanding, reduction of the meaning of the church to the religious institution that meets my needs and, as a, and therefore I'm only concerned with what meets my needs and I want to be with certain people, I want to be with my kind of person, in other words there's no sense that I'm in the church to be equipped to serve God's purposes in the world and within the community. So we have to get over this 
misunderstanding of what the church is about in order to address precisely that problem. Because when we understand that we're called into a community to be equipped to be witnesses for Christ in the world, then we understand the people we're called with are the people God has given us for our equipping. And then it's not a question of how they meet my needs, but how together we are equipped to serve God together. I think that's what Romans, I think that's Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 13. Mm -hmm. That he divinely equipped the gathering people uh, that we need each other. That, that, that we, uh, my life is not complete unless in those gifts that others bring is released in my life. And so we enrich each other. But the end of that is for the working of the ministry. For the father of the church uh, in the world, not just for my own benefit. The church came in the early days, people wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So he was going to add it to his tool of exploitation. So if he had this gift of putting his hands on people and they received the Holy Spirit, then he was going to benefit from. That type of exploitation. Um, Forrest Gunran, I really enjoy this evening with the two of you. I have one question is that here in Seattle there are two phenomena. One is the city churches are not too far from here, and also Mars Hill. Both of them have tremendous growths, and they had on Easter. 17,500 people attending a service uh, in the stadium. Uh, and that is, they're doing a lot of evangelical work. I wonder what your comments are on those two organizations. And a uh, further one is the, the a question of the home churches in China, where they're underground, but yet they're planning on doing a lot of evangelical work in uh, Palestine. The very fact that there was that many people there is sort of exciting to me. And it would be even more exciting if I could get a chance to go there and talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I, I, I really, I, I don't uh... want to <laughs> go in a fin the people that I would like to talk to. I'm not trying to create an environment. Uh, you know, I've, I've experienced that. I've experienced that. Uh, we was hated before they came. If I'd go to a white church, they would turn me away. I don't want to offend the people that I want to change. So I don't know enough about that experience, and I'm not going to, when I talk about uh, uh, the charismatic church, I'm talking about an institution. It's a different thing now when I begin to try to come. If they allow me to come, I believe that the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and impact people. So there is a passage that says, give none offense, neither to the Jew, not to the Gentile, not to the Church of Christ. I hear you. I hear you, and I wouldn't make a judgment upon them without totally examining mm. them. Mm. 
And if they didn't invite me to come and be a part of it, I would go there and then try to, with trembling and fear, believing that the Spirit of God could take the Word of God and apply it to the hearts of people and bring about conviction. I, uh, I know just a very little bit about the Mars Hill Church, and I certainly have heard a fair amount about it these four weeks. I don't know anything about the other one. And I, I would share Dr. Perkins' caution about speaking to a specific situation without doing pretty thorough investigation. But I'm asked all the time uh, in my, my role as a missional theologian about the phenomenon of the so-called megachurch. And what I, what I say to my students is uh, size and numbers are not in themselves an indication either of curse or blessing. One has, to, one has to actually very carefully investigate what is the gospel that is being proclaimed. Uh, churches can grow for good reasons and bad reasons. Uh, and so I want to know, is this a gospel of God's love that is pro- proclaimed lovingly? Is it a gospel of God's peace that is proclaimed uh, peacefully? Uh, or, is, is, or, or, or is there a contradiction here, a gospel of peace proclaimed divisively? A gospel that is to be witnessed that is suddenly becoming judging. And then I would be concerned. Uh, if I perceive that there is a, a, a question of congruence between the gospel and how it is being interpreted and proclaimed. But that would have to be investigated from case to case. And I'm not an expert on the situation here. Okay. And the question. Well, I didn't understand the question about the Chinese. We're gonna, you know, you. We're gonna let you just ask one question, if that's all right, and because there's other folks that, that have questions, so go ahead. The church in Europe has been uh, sending church for many years, but it's now considered a mission field by uh, churches from the so-called third world. What is unique about the church in America that should that would prevent it from uh, becoming? the way the churches in Europe had become. Well, of course, that's the whole reason that I I and many others are so focused upon uh, an honest and unflinching engagement of the fact that Western Christendom is ending. Uh, I've lived in Europe many years, and the process of its ending is more advanced. The, The process of secularization in Europe has developed further, but we're catching up on this side of the North Atlantic. I'm not sure that I'm too concerned about doing something to avoid that happening. I would rather really look upon the end of Christendom as a wonderful opportunity. I think it's high time that we get over the idea that we ever were really Christian societies. I think that's a delusion. Christendom ended, really, because of the fact that in the 20th century, these great so-called Christian nations in the West unleashed the worst wars the world has ever seen against each other. And they all had their Christian chaplains blessing their weapons. This, the, the, the scandal of Western Christianity is our own history. And what we need to face is the fact that we are a very difficult mission field, compromised by a very difficult history. But we're now in a place where we can see things, we can see our own history, we can see our mission field perhaps more clearly than we have for a long time. We're actually closer today to the world of the church before Constantine than we have been for 17 centuries. 
And I, so I, 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 one thing a Christian can never be is a pessimist. If, if all power has been given to Jesus Christ in heaven on earth, then our task is to be obedient to our calling and not, you know, be doomsayers because things are changing or look so grim. That's not our, vo- it's not our vocation. Interesting. Did you hear that? Uh, did you catch the connection between an earlier uh, comment that Dr. Perkins made and Dr. Guter's comment just now? The parallel between the Europeans' experience of the end, the beginning of the end, being marked by a betrayal of the gospel through Christians engaging in war against each other, and Dr. Perkins' comment that the end of the beginning of the end for American Christianity was to establish a church, uh, an apartheid church. Mm-hmm. Isn't that That's interesting? True. The end of Christendom essentially begins with the betrayal of the gospel. Very, mm-hmm. very interesting. Huh. Other questions? Here in the middle. Uh, earlier tonight you uh, mentioned how people are afraid of God or uh, the invitation to become part of God's plan. Just curious uh, what your thoughts might be on how someone would encourage someone or even like our community as this church body, I feel like, can be in that position as well, afraid to make the next step, and uh, what, how would you get beyond that? Great. So the, the question is, is you, you had mentioned earlier, Dr. Perkins, about uh, people's fear of responding to God's invitation to enter into his uh, kingdom and mission. What, what sort of message would you give to those to, to more winsomely, more... Uh, uh, more invitingly uh, invite people into join in that into the kingdom and journey with God. Is that is that a fair? Yeah, okay. All right. Mm-hmm. If I got the question, I would try to create an environment of nurture mm-hmm. and uh, seeking out how we can express. This faith to them. So message and relationship as much as in word. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And in, in, in inviting them into our community mm-hmm. of faith uh, to be nurtured and encouraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm hearing right, mm-hmm. boy, that's, that's what I'm calling people to. That's my life's mission right now. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think that we need to be preparing and planting these nurturing fellowship uh, and that's why I could see these household groups or these smaller congregations could provide that kind of a welcome and nurture uh, to people I, I would strongly support that I think it's clear in the New Testament that the apostol- the apostles mission was to form inviting communities to form communities that were practicing this healing love in such a way that it was uh, it was it was attractive. It was winsome. I, I would I want to communicate to the person who doesn't know this yet that this this person I am talking to is someone whom God loves so much that his freedom has already been purchased for him. He doesn't know it yet, but that's true of him. God loves him so much that God has foreseen a place for her or him to be an instrument of God's healing love in the world. That this is the greatest purpose that one could 
receive for one's life, to be a part of what God is doing to heal the nations. I, I want to convey good news to this person, which is already true. And now that person can discover what that truth, that truth really means. Yeah. And, and there's a strong, in the early day of the church, and, and it's still strong here um, now, uh, they was doing it from house to house. Mm-hmm. They was breaking it down that way. When I went to Jackson and began in, in uh, 73, and by this time, uh, the cracks are in the Mississippi apartheid society. And there are people, white people, young people, business people now, wanting to do something. I invite them to my house. Mm-hmm. It would have created disturbance to go to the churches, because half of the people, uh, more than people, didn't want them in the church. Didn't want us in the church. We couldn't go. We went to house to house, and and and, and I became friend uh, to nine Presbyterian pastors, and we would meet. We wouldn't call it secret, but we didn't meet with nobody else. <laughs> It wasn't and, a secret, but you weren't telling nobody. Right, and then I, I ends up within within nine months. I'm preaching in one of the Presbyterian churches in Jackson. First time, first time, first time, first time. And then the Episcopal Church invites me to come. Then a Methodist Church invites me to come. Uh, I don't know if I have spoken in a white Baptist church I'm in Jackson. I don't know if I've ever done that. You know, I don't know if I have. I just thought of that. <laughs> now, there, there, there are other independent churches and things because they are so caught and damaged by that old... That old system. And they have a book on everything. So they have went through everything. And so they know everything. And so it's difficult to break that system. (laughs) In Mississippi. Okay. And then then here. So here we are about um, just a couple of blocks down from the university. Um, And being a grad student there, one thing that I noticed is kind of the academic culture. Now, it seems like in terms of our diversity, at least in my department, I think we're increasingly becoming more international, more diverse, um, in many ways putting the church to shame um, in terms of our diversity there. And at the same time, we're becoming less and less Christian, less and less open to Christianity. And so I was wondering if you had any insight on how to be evangelical in that context. You're the mission I got. <laughs> That's a hard one. <laughs> I don't think anybody today can uh, can doubt that the 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 intellectual mood of, of our public intellectual life, state universities, is largely no longer just neutral towards Christianity, but antagonistic. That the that the uh, idea that one can be an intellectual and a believing Christian is some, sort of ruled out. It's often summarized with the idea, well, religion's private and should be left to private things. Don't bring it into this public discourse. This is, uh, this is, I think, one of the most important 
aspects of late Christendom that we need to understand. Uh, I, this is where I constantly refer to the work of Leslie Newbegin as a, a very important resource for us to understand what happened in the, the thinking of the West from the 16th, 17th century on that uh, results in our being so marginalized. I think the response to that is to say, well, this is sort of where the church started as a tiny minority in an antagonistic world. That was our history for the first several centuries of, of the Christian pilgrimage. So I think the Bible is very relevant. The biblical formation is very relevant because it's, it's basically saying you live a life that is a demonstration of God's love. You speak when God gives you the opportunity, and he may not. There are many situations which you can't, but you can show. And the most important thing is you build relations of genuine friendship. And in and through that friendship, God's love will be shown and will ultimately also become a topic of conversation. But that means that uh, you take the New Testament language about our neighbor very, very seriously. And that's Jesus' missiological model is you are sent to the people you can't avoid anyway. Those are your neighbors. <laughs> and that's your vocation. That's what, in, in those very real, mundane, daily, routine relationships, that's where the actual work of witness as, as doing and saying, but primarily as being, uh, happens. Yeah. Part, of, part of my whole outreach has been something we call the, the felt need concept, mm -hmm. to get close enough to people to hear their needs and their pain. And it's usually people cry out for help in terms of pain. In just an intellectual conversation, people are trying to show their strength and their intelligence. But in a time of pain and agony, I think that becomes the time to show our deep love mm -hmm. for people. And so I we really look for that. And I think in the basis of that's how our hospital, uh, our rescue mission, and our other, and I, and I believe that that's when we're at our best, and I've said something about this tonight, we're at our best when we enter into the hurting of people and when people can't help themselves and people are naked, uh, we close them. When they are in prison, we go visit them. The, I think that becomes the opportunity mm -hmm. that, that people will listen to us. Mill, right here, uh, right down. Raise your hand there, Mill. There you go. Well, well, I wish I was a representative of the uh, First Baptist Church of Jackson, Mississippi, <laughs> inviting you to uh, preach. But I'm not. I have a, <laughs> I have a question. Um, if we take the the concept of of neighborhood churches or churches in neighborhoods that you were ex uh, suggesting, Dr. Perkins, um, how do you see the the church with its building and facilities being relevant, um, and the church body uh, being relevant? It, it, would you see the church eventually becoming uh, a bunch of neighborhood churches linked? together in one congregation or 
Um, and, and Dr. Guter, do you have a thought about that as well? Yeah. There is not, as, as I have said, we are not condemning uh, large gathering. I see them as is opportunity to become sending agents. So, and I'm not going to over condemn them as long as I can speak to them. I'm, I'm serious. He said that we have to be wise as serpent and harmless as dove, and he told us to be careful without giving offense. Uh, so I see these these churches as looking for ways to express themselves in those communities of need, you know. And so, uh, and, and, and there is a big call for a jubilee, the, 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 the whole biblical idea of days of celebration, days of celebration. So I won't condemn that because there's a certain amount of energy and affirmation that comes out of that. Uh, but now we are talking about creating more Christians and we are talking about creating discipled Christians. And, and so I don't need to condemn all that's there now in order to create this which is new. And I think we that's the way we do that. And I think we create our own walls by, by doing that. I don't see that as absolutely necessary. You know, one, it's not always this and that. It's many times, it's this including that. You know, so it's not that cut and dry. Uh, we have to be wise. We live in the midst of a crooked and perverse world, and we have to shine as lights in the midst of this crooked world. And so we're not out there creating war. We're peacemakers as much as lies in us. Let us live peaceful with all people. But, you know, I, th I think that we got this sort of warlike mentality. I think and that's the, we got this crusade-like. I think that's the, we're not understanding that we are sort of a kingdom people. We're not, the, we're not here to really convert the nation. We're here to witness to the nation. I like what Bill Bright said. He said, what is our task? What is our witness? He says, sharing the love of God and the power of the Spirit and leave some of the results to God. <laughs> I like that. I like that. And I think, I think we need to understand that. Otherwise, we're going to be hostile. We're going to get rid of it. We're going to kill these Muslims. We have to kill these people. Get them out of our way. I don't think that's the Christian. We're supposed to be peacemakers. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we are freer, freer today to recognize with this disintegration of Western Christendom is that, that no particular organizational form of the church can claim to be normative for all times, all places, and all situations. But it is within the creative power of the Holy Spirit to gather Christians for their shared mission in a great diversity of ways. None of them are necessarily permanent. None of them is unchanging. They are all 
but they all serve that fundamental vocation, that there be witness to Jesus Christ, exercised by communities in particular places. And uh, we don't start in a history with a blank slate. We start in a history that, in our case, has left us with buildings on both sides of the North Atlantic, a lot of church buildings. We, can, we need to clarify that we don't exist to be a building. There's nothing about church buildings in the New Testament. The word church doesn't mean building for at least 350 or 400 years. But it is the history that we come out of, and it is also an opportunity that we can use. So I would say uh, it's, a ta- it's a task of our discernment as witnessing communities how we best organize ourselves to go about our task. I think that will include neighborhood communities, the gathering of large masses of people to celebrate, as Dr. Perkins said, in a building like this one, uh, to celebrate our history, as we, we can do in, in some of the great church buildings of Europe, but also to learn that those are resources and gifts, but they are not what defines what we're for, to maintain that building or that structure. Sometimes that's very hard to sort out. Last question, and then we're going to close here in just a minute. Right here. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm really glad about that, that last question because it, it kind of brings up uh, what I wanted to talk about. I studied uh, music at a Christian college and... Uh, grew up being told I was a participant in the worship war. Um, and so just in the larger discussion of missiology and the divisions between generations, um, as participants in the church, observant participants in the church over the last 50 years, can you speak to what our generation could face from a musical perspective, because music has become so synonymous for worship for so many of us, what we could do to integrate our music and our expression of music worship into this missiological focus. Good. Uh, uh, first, go ahead. You go ahead. I've really got something to say, but go ahead. I wanted you to talk first. Well, I would. <laughs> I, 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 the, um, the, I'm a third grade dropout, so I'm not that academically uh, uh, but I see music as as one of the most powerful forces I see I see music right behind love mm-hmm. as one of the most powerful forces in in life and if you can yeah, music can be truth compound and, uh, and it's a driving force. So I think, uh, you know, I, I learned some of this here when I was preaching. We was preaching the music of the New Testament. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and there is music. John, the writer of the Nicodemus story, uh, took truth and turned it to music. Uh, that's what made Isaiah such an outstanding prophet. He took prophetic truth and put it into music. And that's why it was so powerful. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. When Jesus was trying to explain to Nicodemus the whole idea of the mystery of conversion, 
he broke into a song. What was the motivation for all of this? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe in him should not perish, but have a lasting life. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned. That's a song. That's a song. And what a greater song in the 23rd song. In God's care and God's love, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Music is powerful. You can turn that around and make it negative. That's why I sort of confront. I don't confront rap primarily in terms of the way, they, way it sounds. I condemn it in the culture and the condemnation of women and violence. Do you understand? And then it becomes powerful when it's a negative force in the world. And so music is absolutely, it's, it's, it's the art form. The angels, you know, the, the biblical thought is that angels can't sing. That's the biblical thought. But that night when Jesus was incarnated, it was so wonderful that the appeared the heavenly host praising God. You understand? So I, music is, is, is it, it comes to us. The Psalms are the most of one theme in the Bible. Uh, so it's, it's, the art of doing that is just wonderful. Wonderful. You're in favor of music. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, picking, I'm picking I'm picking that right up. I'm in favor of it. Y'all have heard the John Perkin Blue? <laughs> y'all never heard that? There's a group that's called Switchfoot. In fact, my, my memoirs that's coming out real soon is going to be named after that. Love is a final fight. He says in one of the verses, he says, uh, John Perkin has it right. Love is a final fight. That was God's motivation for redemption. And that's what we're going to experience. That wonderful wedding feast one day. And we're going to be all in love with God. In love with each other. I certainly strongly agree with the power and the centrality of music as a form of communication that far surpasses anything we can say. The music adds melody and harmony and, and ex, it is, expresses, it, it fills out the language of praise and prayer in ways that, say, theological discourse can never do. Um, I think it's a very regrettable thing that we fail to recognize that music serves our forming for our vocation. We tend to deal with music the way we deal with so many things in the church as my taste and what makes me feel good, what, what, what meets my needs. So it's an irony that music has become divisive. Uh, only the American church can make music divisive. <laughs> and I think we've got serious work to do from every perspective. From all of those who love to be in a room with a pipe organ to all of those who can't stand this instrument, to ask ourselves, what is that music for and what are we doing to it when we make our taste into an ultimate theological criterion? 
I don't see that as a simple task, but I think it's a very important task in our formation for witness that has integrity, that, that communicates unity to the world that's watching us. Uh, and I think, incidentally, with the, with the giftedness I've experienced in this congregation, this is a community that could do some work on that, that could help us understand how music can be expression of our unity rather than our dividedness. Thank you all for your questions. Outstanding questions. Um, really fine. I'm going to wrap up with this. And I, I want to ask a question, and I'm going to ask it in such a way that I'm hoping that Dr. Perkins and Dr. Guter's answers will essentially uh, be a commissioning of us. And so tonight we've, we've, we've had a conversation that has explored the relationship between uh, faith and culture, church and society. We've had some biblical reflection. We've had some reflection about UPC in terms of some strengths and, and, and weaknesses and challenges and, and opportunities. And in culminating all of this, I'd like the two of you to reflect on this question as a means of commissioning us from this place. Now that we've, we've had some conversation that establishes perhaps some new understandings, what are some key practices that you would encourage us in as we go forth from here? What are some practices that we could engage in that leads us deeper uh, into being formed in Jesus Christ that we might be witnesses and servants in the places that God sends us? Practices. Two or three key practices. I let me go with one that I'm really caught with is Paul says pray always mm -hmm. I would go out with prayer mm -hmm. I would go out with actually calling more prayer meetings I would go out inviting people to pray. Let's pray together. I see prayer as listening to God. We don't know what we ought to ask for. But God is calling and the sound has went out. And I think we need to be listening. Prayer is in reality Listening for God. Listening for God. So that we can know his will. So that his will can be done. That his kingdom would come. And I think that's such an initiative. And, it's, and it we're called on to do it always. And the great initiatives in the Bible starts with prayer. The straight biblical initiative, prayer. We find them in prayer. So that that's what, and that would be listening, 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 listening to each other, listening to our pain, listening to our hurts. Yeah, that's what that would be my commission us. That's something we can go with. It's not threatening. Prayer is not threatening. No, you. you don't usually get beat up for prayer. 
uh, uh, you most is liberated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. through prayer. In some work we've been doing in trying to understand how missional change happens in churches, we've discovered precisely what Dr. Perkins has just emphasized, that any and every congregation we've identified where there seems to be serious missional ferment, a a reorientation around the missionary vocation of the church, every single congregation is a congregation at which disciplined corporate prayer is at the center of the life of the church. I would link to that... um, Disciplined corporate engagement with scriptures as God's way of shaping us to be uh, his witnessing people. And uh, I would link those together with a wish that uh, University of Presbyterian Church might become a congregation where every time you gather, you come asking, how is God going to encounter me here today so that I am better equipped to serve him when this congregation sends me out? Receive the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. Amen. Amen.